Revelation 3. Uh, Revelation is the uh, last book in the Bible. should be fairly easy to find. Um, as we get there, uh, I just want you to notice with me how easy it is to be deceived by people. Uh, whether it's other people deceiving you or maybe uh, deceiving yourself. I've had some moments where I've deceived myself, but I think one of the really, uh, really, really terrible things about our age uh, of social media is that most of our impressions of other people are their filtered, perfect pictures. Um, almost all of American life today is about appearances. Um, it's very easy to think that someone else's life is perfect or to think that what matters most is that your life appears okay. But as we've read, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, which are uh, Jesus speaking uh, to seven historical churches, um, we have seen very clearly that the Lord does not care much about appearances, and he's not fooled by appearances. And in fact, uh, for these three churches that we're going to read today about in Revelation 3, Two in a very bad place, and one's in a very good place. But in all of them, we see that the Lord sees right through appearances. So if you've been a little, uh, a little obsessed with the appearances of your life lately, or you are interested in knowing what really matters, Revelation 3 will help you see that. Uh, as we read, uh, I want you to look really carefully for the contrast between how it seems that the church is doing and how they are really doing, okay? So we're going to read Revelation 3 of a whole chapter. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from 
my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, uh, I pray you would give us ears to hear this morning. Um, this passage seems to come to us from a different world, and indeed it does. And uh, There's so much we could talk about here, but I just pray that you would enable us to see uh, with the eyes of our heart um, and to hear uh, your voice. I pray you'd bring application and encouragement here in Jesus' name. Amen. Things are not always what they seem, especially uh, in church. I have learned this uh, kind of the hard way in my own heart and ministry. Um, one of the things I have learned that I am worst at is first impressions. Now, I don't mean my impression on other people. In fact, as a resolution to my own mental sanity, I try to never think about that. Um, I would just encourage you guys, uh, if you're very self-conscious, to just try to focus on blessing others. Do not think so much about how you come across. Anyway, but, but, but what I'm bad at, okay, is I'm really bad at reading people in a first interaction. Really, really bad. Um, a few examples stand out. There was this guy who I knew uh, in this group a long time ago, I won't tell you when, uh, but he came in and he's this kind of like tall, winsome guy. Um, we had coffee. He wants to go into missions. He graduated from Auburn, doing great. And uh, he offered to lead worship at Connect one night. It never happened. In my, my mind, thankfully, no offense to him, but um, and like it was just like, man, this guy, like, sweet, you know, like he's just crushing it. I, mean, I even kind of saw like the girls swarm, swarm around him, anyways, just kidding. Uh, but two months after I met him, he's gone. He's not involved in any church, stops returning my calls, maybe not even a Christian. Blew my mind. Things aren't always how they seem. On the other side, I remember uh, one of the first uh, girls I met in young adults, and this is just, this. every time I see this person now, I just think to myself how terrible I am at first impressions, but I totally judged her just by her appearance. I don't mean her looks, but just like it looked, she looked so put together, I just assume she's got to be faking it, you know? Like there's no, there's no way, right? You know, people, I just got a vibe from her. And uh, as, as it turns out, 
as I've gotten to know her, she is one of the most humble, godly people I know. Seriously, every time I see her, I'm just, man, Leland, you are terrible. And, uh, and a, a part of this uh, is my sinfulness, but um, can't you guys just see kind of both the draw of appearances and the deceitfulness of appearances? I mean, think about this particular stage of life you guys are in. You're, most of you are in a stage of life when you're looking uh, to date and get married. And I think one of the really unfortunate things about just trying to date in America is that so much of that process is based entirely on appearances. In fact, we rule people out based on their appearances, based on the vibe we get from them before we even really see their lives. And as a result, you know, some of us are doing that. Some of us are just obsessing over our appearances and really trying to come off the right way. And, and ultimately, none of those things really matter to the Lord. But it's not just uh, in young adults. I mean, you think about this. You probably, maybe you've come to church one day and you see a greeter who's not really greeting, is not very friendly. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with him? And you don't realize that he's mourning the death of his wife of 30 years and the fact that he's simply here, right? Jesus is pleased with that. You might see somebody dressed to a T with a big smile, giant Bible under their arm, going to teach a Sunday school class. And unknown to you or anybody else, he is slowly but surely becoming a heretic. Things aren't what they seem in church. And that's the big thing we see in these three churches. There's a lot different about them. There's a lot to say here. But in each of these churches, things are not what they seem. Sardis is a popular church that is dead. Philadelphia is a powerless church that is destined. And Laodicea is a proud church that is desperate. Let's, uh, let's see Sardis first. Look, at, uh, look what Jesus says in verse 1. This is the end of verse 1, beginning of that second little paragraph. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Uh, this image of uh, knowing Jesus, knowing his works, when he says this, he means I know who you really are spiritually. And what, he, what does he know about Sardis? He knows that they appear to be alive. In fact, they're probably a church that's very well spoken of. You know, you might go to First Baptist Sardis, and uh, you're just visiting Sardis. You go to First Baptist Sardis, and the worship's really good. The, 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 the preaching seems biblical. The people seem really nice, okay? And you're like, man, I'm going to recommend FBS. You know, I'm going to recommend that to my friends when they move to Sardis, you know? <laughs> And uh, Jesus says to them, you have not fooled me. I see the truth under your reputation. Um, but just, uh, just notice uh, the scriptures often talk about becoming a Christian as this passage from death into life. Ephesians 2 describes believers as they were dead and God raised them to new life. Well, the church in Sardis had slidden so far from the gospel and so far from the Christian life that Jesus describes them as going back from life into death. Um, the only good thing he can say about this church is verse 4. He says, you still have a few names in Sardis, maybe, maybe a handful of people uh, who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. This is an image drawn from the Old Testament. The prophet uh, Zechariah is in the middle of the Bible in those minor prophets. And uh, there's this vision in Zechariah where the high priest Joshua, who's supposed to stand uh, in God's presence, comes to God in dirty garments. And uh, 
God takes his dirty garments away and gives him clean, white garments. And it's this prophetic image in Zechariah of what God does for people when they believe in Jesus. He, he gives them a pure, um, righteous life, makes them able to stand in God's presence. You know, the gospel is the truth because of what Jesus did, what he's already done by living a perfect life, by dying for sinners, by being raised. All you do is trust him. You receive him. You rest on him. And he gives you perfect righteousness before God, like clean clothes, the ability to stand in God's presence without shame. Jesus does that just in the gospel. But the, uh, and a few people in Sardis had taken that, taken those garments, and kept them clean. I think the idea here is they, they're not living perfectly, but they're living faithfully. They're attempting to live out the gospel. But the rest of the church in Sardis had taken these white garments and jumped through the hole of a porta potty. They had made their garments wretched. They had soiled them. I think the idea is that they claimed to believe the gospel, but they had so stained their lives, their actual way of life, that they are now indistinguishable from non-Christians. Um, maybe they're genuinely Christians who are in the worst possible place you can be. Maybe they never believed in Jesus in the first place. Um, just a, a kind of a side note here. One thing we really value here in young adults in our ministry is genuine conversion. Uh, we realize that in our kind of day and age in America, when church attendance isn't really that popular, it's very easy just because you're here and just because you've claim to be a Christian, you claim to believe the Bible, it's very easy to assume I've got the real thing. And uh, a passage like this passage reminds us that being a Christian is much, much more than just showing up, giving your tithe, reading your Bible, and claiming allegiance to Jesus. Um, being a Christian involves a conversion on the inside. It involves a resting upon Jesus himself as your hope. And working that hope out in all the details of your life. Um, as John 4 says, it involves worshiping God in spirit and truth. As we see here, it involves a purity of life, or at least an intense pursuit of a purity of life. So, um, I have to ask, because Jesus asks, is your life genuinely Christian, or does it just appear Christian. If you think about the, the focus of your life, is your is your is the the focus of your Christian life on all of the outward actions, being in the right places, saying the right things, telling everybody you're doing just fine in small groups. Do you actually have what God says Christians have? Not perfectly, okay, but do you actually have an experience of love for Jesus Christ? of resting upon him? Do you actually see your life slowly, gradually, painfully sometimes, right, conforming to Christ's likeness? Do you look more like an American or more like a Christian? If you can say with humility, but honestly, I, I do think I'm alive, okay? I think the main application here from Sardis is to stay alive, to hold fast, um, and maybe also to not be fooled 
by the appearances. Um, but maybe uh, you feel kind of dead this morning or so sleepy spiritually that you're in danger. And I would just like to suggest to you that though this might be a scary place to be, it's a wonderful place to be. Like, if you sense your spiritual danger, that is a great sign that Jesus is working in your life. If you sense your tendency to slip and slide spiritually into dullness, that's a great sign. Jesus is, he's, he wants to wake you up, right? Normally, uh, we, we would say that friends don't tackle their friends. Okay, that's not something we do. Uh, in fact, we might call that assault and battery, right? Uh, but a tackle that gets you out of the way of a train, right? That is a loving and gracious thing to do. And so when, when Christ speaks plainly like this, like, hey, like, it looks like you're alive, but you're dead. When he says that, he does it in love. And if you sense that, man, that's a great place to be because the solution is very easy. Look what he says here. All right. Verse 3, the application. You're feeling dead. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. What is it that the church in Sardis had received and heard? It was not a list of moral teachings. It was the gospel. The reason there's a church in Sardis is because someone came to Sardis and they preached Jesus, God's Son, become a man, perfect life, death for sinners, resurrection. Jesus is saying here, remember that message. Focus on it. Keep it. Live in light with the gospel. Um, And notice for people who receive that from Christ, who freshly turn, Notice that Jesus gives them the very thing they lack. He gives them the real thing. Look at, look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Notice uh, it's one thing to have other people uh, think that you're walking with the Lord. It's a totally another to have Jesus tell his Father, that you're the real deal. That's a real reputation. It's a real, it's really having the real thing. Jesus says, remember the gospel. Look to me. See it. And you'll have that. But things aren't always what they seem. The popular church is dead. But uh, that contrast goes the other way. Our next church uh, in Philadelphia is a powerless church. They're a church where things really aren't happening over there. But we see this powerless church is destined. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Most likely this idea of power means that by appearances and results, Philadelphia is not doing great. They're not seeing lots of conversions. All right, my guess is you would, if you, if you attended the Philadelphian church, all right, not Philadelphia in uh, Pennsylvania, right? There, there was a city in Philadelphia in Greece, okay? Most of our cities in America are named after ancient cities. Anyways, whatever. Um, if you attended that church, right, uh, you'd probably be a little bit bored. There's not a lot going on. They don't have a lot of ministry options. In fact, they're pretty poor because they're persecuted. The only thing going on is people are getting, people are getting in trouble. They don't see a lot of results, And uh, even though they seem quite powerless and have but little power, the Lord only has good things to say to them. 
Look at what's important to Jesus. It's not results. It's not appearances. It's the end of verse 8. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Fruitfulness is not the main thing the Lord desires and requires of you. It's faithfulness. Don't focus on the results of your Christian life, but on the Lord's regard for your Christian life. Now, of course, uh, this doesn't mean we say, okay, we haven't seen anybody converted in 10 years. That's okay. It's not a big deal. That doesn't mean that, okay? I, I uh, I think it's great to examine yourself if uh, you have never seen anyone come to faith in Jesus or been a part of anyone else's story or you've never seen any change in your life in the last five years, yes, you should examine yourself. But the fact that you're not seeing fruit, the fact that you don't feel like you have a lot of power does not necessarily mean you're not being faithful. Um, Jesus is not numbers-focused like many churches are tempted to be. But notice, it's not just that Jesus is pleased with a powerless church. He also says that they are destined for glory and power. Uh, Notice uh, in verse 7, the way Jesus describes himself. And again, I know these descriptions are kind of difficult to understand, but it says that Jesus is the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The hard part about Revelation is that it references Old Testament books many of us have never read. But this is a reference to Isaiah 22.22, where the Lord tells Isaiah to give one of God's people the key to the house of David. Um, And this steward who had this key, he had access, and he was the only person who had access to the king. That was the idea. He could could, uh, get in and out with the king. He could shut doors, they wouldn't open. He could open, they wouldn't shut. Um, And so uh, Grant Osborne says in his great commentary on Revelation that this person has the keys to the kingdom. And the idea here is that Jesus is the one who has access to God, the king. He alone has access to the Father and the kingdom the Father is bringing. And notice to this powerless church, he says, verse 8, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, you might take this as uh, an open door for opportunity for ministry. Uh, that, that's a possible interpretation. I think it's most likely that this door is the door to the kingdom, the door to eternal life. The door, to, the door to God's very presence. Uh, a couple reasons why. First, look at verse 9. Okay, look, uh, again, difficult here. Uh, Jesus says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and who are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Many of the churches in these uh, letters uh, lived in the Roman Empire, and they had Jewish people in their cities who persecuted them and tried to get them killed. That's what was going on here. And Jesus says, they're not really Jews. Actually, they they serve Satan. But look what he says in verse 9. I will make them come come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. uh, What kind of people have people bowing before them? Kings and queens, right? Jesus is saying here, hey, Philadelphian church, nobody's coming on Sundays, right? We ain't got no money. Nothing's going well. Hey, listen, you guys are future rulers of the universe. There's a day coming when your enemies will bow before your feet. You have a destiny in the middle of what appears 
like a lot of powerlessness. There's a day coming when you will have power, when you will have recognition. Notice again, the reward for this church is perfect. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Notice pillars uh, in ancient world construction practices. Pillars uh, were parts of the building where most of the weight rested on them. Okay, They held the building up. And so being a pillar in God's house first means that you're always in God's presence. And second, it means you're important. Now, God, listen, guys, God doesn't need us, okay? But for his people who are faithful, he gives them places of importance in the kingdom. We all long for significance and recognition. Jesus says, be faithful in the midst of what seems like powerlessness and fruitlessness, and you will have that. So, uh, in application, do not view your Christian life by its appearances of power. Uh, we live in a day where most of our desires are instantly gratified. We don't want to wait in line at Starbucks, so we just, we just mobile order. It's right there waiting for us, right? Like that's, that's, that's American life, and uh, we're very tempted to view our Christian lives in terms of immediate gratification. Um, I've heard people say, man, I've been, I've been reading my Bible, nothing's happening. I'm like, how long have you been reading? He's like, well, a couple months. I'm like, try 20 years. Something will happen in 20 years, okay, right? Um, we assume that if I'm being faithful to Jesus, things will go well with me, that I will see things happen, that my life plans will start working out, that I'll, uh, I'll feel better, that I won't have as many trials. Guys, that's not biblical, right? Now, those things might come, right? Um, but Jesus says here, Okay, that being faithful might look like struggling through what feels like powerlessness. And he richly rewards people who remain faithful in what feels like powerlessness. Um, I think we expect the Christian life to be like high-speed internet access. You know, you plug into Jesus, boom, everything happens quick. It's a little more like playing golf, right? Everyone starts off terrible. Okay, and you play for 20 years and you still have bad days, right? And you gradually, slowly, painfully over time see results. That is a better picture of the Christian life. Now, again, I'm not saying that if you haven't seen change in your life in 10 years that you should be okay with that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't long and pray for God to just do a mighty work in our communities through us. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we should not base our lives with the Lord on the appearances and on the results. So if, you're, if, you're, if you feel like you are doing everything in your power to be faithful and you see little fruit, take heart. Keep failing forward. Stay on the treadmill. And just kind of as a minor application here. Uh, don't view other Christians based on the results of their lives. You know, I've, I've just relentlessly quoted C.S. Lewis in the last six months. It's okay. He's great. Okay, we can learn from him. But uh, he says something very, uh, very helpful in mere Christianity. You don't know where people start. Some people are just handed hundreds of common grace blessings. 
from Christian families, from having a good genetic makeup, from all these things. And their life in Christ might make them like the nicest, most pleasant, successful person. Some people are not handed those things. And the appearances of their lives might be real messy. They might be real frustrating and hard. But they've grown a hundred times more than that person with all those blessings. So, and again, I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening. But we've all got somebody here we know where we're like, they must be doing something wrong. Right? Like, I just, the way, I mean, they, they've got to be doing And listen, I'm just saying, reserve judgment for God. All right? Be compassionate and kind towards people. You do not know someone's heart and life and what Jesus is pleased by. Okay. Things are not always how they seem. Powerless churches are destined for glory. There's a final church, and again, we see the contrast one more time. This church appears very powerful. They probably have a very nice church building. Things are quite pleasant in Laodicea. But we actually see in a moment that they are spiritually desperate on the edge of destruction. So uh, in a second, we're going to see the specific sin of Laodicea's, but I would like to spend some time on this very famous verse 16, verse 15. Uh, Look what Jesus says. uh, I know your works. You are neither cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want to point something quite ironic out before I try to interpret this verse, and that is that although almost none of you in here have sat through a series of teaching on Revelation, and very few of you have even heard a single sermon on Revelation before uh, we started, everyone here almost has heard of a lukewarm believer, right? We've seen them uh, dash to the ground, and we have this idea that a lukewarm believer is someone who's kind of like half-passionate, like one foot in, one foot out. And that's a sin. I'm, I'm sure that's a sin. I'm sure that's elsewhere in the Scriptures. That's not really what the Lord's getting after here. Um, and one of, one of the ways I, I believe that is because Laodicea has got a very interesting relationship with water. Uh, Laodicea was, a, was a, uh, the city of Laodicea was in, again, I think it was in northeastern Greece. It was north of Colossae. They had everything. They had a port. They were in strategic trade and military routes. They were very wealthy for that reason, but they did not have a source of fresh water. So the city south of them, Colossae, they had these incredibly cold, refreshing fresh water, I think from the mountains. The city north of them had these really powerful, healing hot springs. Laodicea had nothing. So what did they do? They were Romans. They were super smart. So they pumped water, again, in year the year 100 AD, which is crazy. They pumped water uh, from the hot springs five miles to the north to their city. And by the time it got to Laodicea, the water had not cooled fully yet. It was lukewarm. People still today uh, in Laodicea and poor places will get their water and leave it out to cool. Okay, so um, I don't think the author wants us to focus here on what it means to be spiritually hot or spiritually cold or what those those images mean. I think he wants to get across the fact that lukewarm liquid is useless and gross. And this church had become useless and gross. Again, uh, you walk into Starbucks, you can get hot drinks or cold drinks. There is no lukewarm menu. Lukewarm water is useless. I know people, I'm married to a person who will microwave lukewarm coffee because, again, microwave, that's how bad lukewarm is, okay? But this is what Jesus is saying to Laodicea here, okay? I want to be be very, uh, very plain here. What Jesus is saying to Laodicea is, you guys make me sick. 
you are 75 degree LaCroix that's been left out overnight, okay? You are Folgers coffee from yesterday, right? You are sweet tea where the ice has melted and it's like water on top and tea on the bottom and there's a fly in the drink, okay? That's what you are right now. What do we do to all those things? We throw them away. And that is exactly what Jesus is about to do with this gross and disgusting church. He's about to spit them out of his mouth. If you will, like I tell my little girls, he's about to rinse and spit to get that nasty taste. So pay, pay close attention to what follows. Here we have maybe the only place in Scripture where we see what makes Jesus sick to his stomach. It's the one it's one thing to know what pleases Jesus, one thing to know what will make your life with him harder, but to know what disgusts him tells us what to run away from, what to flee. And I'll just be honest, uh, uh, this this passage has destroyed me as I've read it. It's made just I was preparing this passage in collective coffee and like almost wept in public. I just see this in my life so much. Just know that I'm saying that I'm someone who's been kind of wrecked by this text as I talk about it. But but notice, what is so disgusting about this church? Look at verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What is so gross about this church? Their self-satisfaction. Their self-sufficiency. Thinking they were just fine in their walks with Jesus. How you doing, Laodicea in church? Oh, we're good. That's what is disgusting to Jesus. Now, notice, it's not their wealth necessarily, okay? They are rich. They have wealth. But it's not necessarily the fact that they're wealthy. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to spit you out because you have money. He says, no, no, no. It's the attitude your wealth has given you. You've taken life's blessings. You've taken the good things. You've taken all the food in your fridge and the fact that you have money to go to lunch today. And you've said, ah, I'm fine. This is what I need. Um, now, we've got to be really careful here, okay? We just had 20 hearts in this room excuse themselves from the sin of Laodicea. And if that's you, I'd just say, be very careful. Um, I think the sin underneath this self-sufficiency is arrogance and pride. It's the fact that, man, man, I, I'm fine. I can do this. I'm okay. Um, and I'll talk about a few ways this might manifest itself in your life. First, it can look exactly what it looks like for the Laodiceans. Spiritual complacency. Your life starts going well. You get promoted. You meet somebody. You have a few of your dreams come true. You get a day off. Finally, some me time. Do a little self-care. Okay? And you kind of sit back and you say, ah. Right? You're in Laodicea. Or even, uh, I think, even maybe worse, uh, some of us here are not happy with our circumstances at all. And you might be in a worse place uh, than they were in Laodicea. Uh, I think one of the biggest temptations in our day is to be, at the same time, discontent with our circumstances, but very content with who we are and where we are spiritually. Um, just notice what, what happens to you when your circumstances are very difficult, you spend all of your time focusing on them exclusively, right? To change them. You run them over in your head again and again, right? And what are you doing when you're doing that? 
you're not focusing on your life with the Lord. You're taking, you're letting it slide a little bit. Isn't it crazy? You can be right where the Laodiceans are and not even be happy with the gifts God has given you. Probably the worst way this can come out, though, maybe the most disgusting thing, that's not in Laodicea, but it's in many of us, okay, is the self-satisfaction that comes when you're doing well spiritually. When you finish your Bible reading plan, when you see some people come to faith around you, when you pray in your small group and it sounds really good coming off your lips, and there's this little voice inside saying, you were doing just fine. Good job. So, things aren't always what they seem. Some of the times in our lives when we feel most comfortable with ourselves, when we are most enjoying the things around us, when things, when dreams start coming true, those can be the most dangerous moments in our lives. Trials might feel harder, but blessings are much harder to manage and survive. I like to say that, uh, that enjoying God's blessings are like standing and seeing an incredible view and just kind of basking in the beauty, but you don't realize that you're standing on the edge of a cliff in a great place, a place you should enjoy, but a place in which you should be very careful. The Laodiceans had made a little bit of money. Their circumstances were great. The persecution had stopped. And they just kind of slid. But notice the mercy here. You know, you might, you might think it's pretty mean for Jesus to say that he's disgusted with people. Okay, that's pretty mean, right? But notice why he's being so intense Verse 17 again, the worst thing about being proud is you do not know that you're proud. You say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing, they don't realize that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Francis Chan said, pride is like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it except you. Um, but if you find this in yourself, if you're sensing it a little bit this morning, like I very much am, just notice again, Jesus is punching them in the face for their good. He gives a clear solution, and he gives them a clear hope. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Notice all the things they really were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, Jesus cures those. He says, come to me and buy true riches from me. Find your satisfaction and your worth and your sense of meaning in me. Stop looking at yourself, whether that's good or bad. Stop looking at what you've done. Stop looking at your, your righteousness, your performance, right? Come to me and find the real thing. There's gold refined by fire, stuff that lasts in me. There is salve to anoint your eyes, to help you see who you really are and to see me clearly. There's a clear solution. If you're walking in this kind of arrogance, the solution is to come to Jesus and receive to Him, receive from Him the real thing. And notice again, if you're feeling a little wounded this morning by that, look at verses 19 to 20. Those whom I love... 
I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Even the Laodiceans can find grace. Jesus loves them, even though they taste pretty terrible right now. He wants your good. Why does God speak harshly to us? Why does he say tough things to us? Why does he arrange circumstances in our lives that wound us and destroy us? He does it in love. He's reproving. He's disciplining. What he longs, okay, what he longs for is verse 20. He longs to have fellowship with you. He says, hey, listen, I stand at the door and knock, right? I'm knocking on the door of your life through this rebuke. That's what I'm doing. I'm saying, just open the door. Humble yourself. Admit this is true about you. And I will come in, and we will have a great time. We will have fellowship. Your heart's desires will be satisfied in my presence. There's grace for the proud and desperate church. In conclusion, we've seen today kind of what we started with. That if there's any place where things aren't always what they seem, it is church. And the main reason for that is that, as 1 Samuel says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. We might find rest in our circumstances or our experiences or how we feel like we're doing, but those things are not necessarily true. What Jesus sees and what he says are true. Um, North Carolina's state motto is Esse Quam Videri. Most of our state mottos are in Latin, interestingly enough. But this Latin phrase means to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. And as we wrap up this section on these seven letters to the seven churches, um, I think as we've seen kind of how Jesus sees right through us and how it's very easy to deceive ourselves, I think we should say that the main thing we should be about is not just to seem like Christians, not just to aim our lives at seeming like we have it, but to actually be Christians, to spend time with the Lord, to live out our faith, to apply the gospel. What matters is not what other people see, but what the Lord sees. So maybe you're not really sure where you're at. If that's you, you can pray like Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is a grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe you ask God to help you see. Maybe if you're convicted, you can do what Lamentations 3 calls us to do, to test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Whatever you do, with all your heart, seek to be rather than to seem. Let's pray. Lord, uh, just thank you for the scriptures, and uh, thank you that the reason that you rebuke and discipline and reprove us is because you love us. And I just pray um, that you would help us to see just the, your graciousness in speaking the truth to us and how kind you are in that. Please uh, make application here in our hearts. I just pray for the ability to not leave this room and never think about Revelation 3 again. Enable us to, to, to meditate upon this and apply it to our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.